Okay, brothers and sisters, praise us be to our loving Yahuwah God that we are gathered once again to study His words. Take a look at our screen, and we are in the book of Numbers. So we finished Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus in just a matter of months, right? Well, it actually took, when did we start? Back in 2000, was it 19? Yeah, so we've been over a year, and we finished three books. Look at that. So we finished the three books. We are now on the fourth book of the Torah, and we are going to talk about the book of Numbers, which is basic, basically an account of what happened to the people of Israel during the wilderness travel from Exodus to the promised land. So the focus now is on obtaining the promised land promised by Yahuwah, our God. Now take note in the book of Exodus, the whole Exodus event, the transference of the people of God from Egypt to the wilderness in Sinai, that took place about one year, one year of an event, right? The giving of the laws in Leviticus, that took place in about a month. Book of Numbers, the span of time allotted in the wilderness journey was more than 38 years. So it was a long time in the wilderness and we'll find out why it took so long. It was not supposed to be that long and so the book of Numbers will tell us and teach us what happened to the people of Israel. This is important because in many ways, it's like a metaphor, right? The travel, the journey of the people of Israel across the wilderness is like a metaphor for our journey as well. People of Israel have to travel to the promised land. We too have to make the same journey to a better promised land an eternal Jerusalem in the kingdom of heaven. So we can learn so much from what happens in the book of Numbers. So let's begin. How does the book of Numbers begin? What does Yahuwah instruct Moses to do in the wilderness of Sinai? Numbers 1, 1 to 4. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, Yahuwah spoke to Moses in the tabernacle, in the wilderness of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of that year, he said... From the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clans and families. List all the men 20 years old or older who are able to go to war. You and Aaron must register the troops and you will be assisted by one family leader from each tribe. And so what was Yahuwah's instruction to Moses there at, Mount, uh, at the wilderness of Sinai. Take note, these are the events after the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. After the law was given, after the priests were assigned, so on and so forth, it's time to take action. It's time to obtain the promised land. For them to do that, what was the command of Yahuwah God? Yahuwah God says to Moses, you need to register and list all the men 20 years old or older who are able to go to war. And so a census was taken. If you were there with the people of Israel and Moses is asking for a census, capable men who can fight in a war, what are you going to think in your mind? You got to prepare for battle, right? And so when God begins this way, what he is doing is really preparing the people of God for battle, for war, because God knows that in the process of obtaining the promised land, there will be many obstacles. 
And so we need to understand this about God's promise. Yahuwah God will give them the promised land. He will give it to them with his mighty hand. However, we need to do our part as well, right? What is our part? We have to fight for it. And so the people of Israel were not going to receive the promised land on a silver platter. It's not going to be simply handed to, handed to them like that. They have to fight for it. And so in the same way, we have to fight our way to obtain and to go through the many problems in life and obtain the promised land. And so God's promise requires that we fulfill our part, which is fighting for our faith, believing and holding on to the promise of Yahuwah our God. So God is preparing his people. How does he do that? How does he organize the people of Israel? Let's read the uh, book of Numbers chapter 1, 5 down to 15. These are the tribes and the names of the leaders who will assist you. So he organizes the people of Israel according to how many tribes? 12 tribes. Who are the 12 tribes? Tribe of Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Ephraim, son of Joseph, Manasseh, son of Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph has two representations, Ephraim and Manasseh. Take note, however, there's one missing on this list. What tribe is that? Not accounted for here. What do you notice? What tribe is missing? Levites. The Levites are missing, and we'll find out later on why that is. So God organizes the people of Israel according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, after organizing the 12 tribes, what does Yahuwah God want his people to do? Let's read 116 down to 19. These are the chosen leaders of the community the leaders of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. So Moses and Aaron called together these chosen leaders and they assembled the whole community of Israel on that very day. All the people were registered according to their ancestry by their clans and families. The men of Israel who were 20 years old or older were listed one by one just as Yahuwah had commanded Moses. So Moses recorded their names in the wilderness of Sinai. So after organizing the tribes, well, somebody had to lead each tribe, right? And so he assigned appointed leaders to lead each of the tribes, including what is mentioned here, right? Tribe leader, Reuben, Elizur, Simeon, the leader is Shel Shalumiel, so on and so forth. So these are the names of the leaders of each tribe. So we have the tribes, we have the leaders of the tribes, we have the men who are 20 years and above who are capable of fighting in the war. How many were listed or registered as capable of fighting in a war? Let's read 20 to 43. This is the number of men, 20 years old or older, who were able to go to war as their names were listed in the records of their clans and families. And so if you look at the, uh, the army, basically, of the people of Israel, which clan had the most number? Which one had the, the most fighting men? Yeah, by far, right? 74,600 fighting men 
which one had the least? Manasseh? Looks like it's Manasseh, right? 32,200. So Judah, number one on the list, but they all have different numbers. So all of them are registered as fighting men. How many in totality did the people of Israel as a nation have in, uh, in terms of fighting men? Well, in Numbers 1, 44 to 40, 46, these were the men registered by Moses and Aaron and the 12 leaders of Israel, all listed according to their ancestral descent. They were registered by families, all of the men of Israel, who were 20 years old or older and able to go to war. The total number was 603,550. 603,550. That's a pretty big group. They all came from Egypt as slaves. When you think of this number, 600,000. These are just the men 20 years and above who can fight in a war. You add the elderly, you add the women, you add the children, you can easily make the argument for two and a half million people for the people of Israel. So that's a pretty large tribe, right? group of people composed of one or two million people led by Moses across the wilderness. That's a hard thing to do. Have you ever imagined how two million people look like? That's a lot of people to lead. And so you can see the daunting task ahead of Moses and Aaron and all the 12 leaders of Israel. However, we do have God. We have Yahuwah who is going to help them. Now, of course, when we mentioned the 603,550, we did not even mention the Levites, right? Why not? Well, numbers 1, 47 to 50, but this total did not include the Levites. For Yahuwah had said to Moses, do not include the tribe of Levi in the registration. Do not count them with the rest of the Israelites. But the Levites in charge of the tabernacle of the covenant along with all its furnishings and equipment, they must carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings as you travel, and they must take care of it and camp around it. And so what was the purpose of the Levites? They were not included in the registration because the registration is about what? Fighting men. The Levites were, they had a different function. And in, Levit in Numbers chapter 3, we're going to talk more about the Levites because they too were included in the registration, a registry, but different from the registry that is taking place right now that we are studying. So the Levites had a different function. The other Israelites, the fighting men, their purpose was to protect the people of Israel from the anger of their neighboring nations, right? The people of Levi, I mean, the, yeah, the Levites, their purpose was to protect the people of Israel from the anger of Yahuwah God because they were to serve in the temple. And because of their daily sacrifices, even though the people of Israel commit sin because of the sacrifices they give to Yahuwah God, it's a way of protecting them from the anger and wrath of Yahuwah our God. So they were the ones in charge of the tabernacle, all the equipment, and also when it comes to packing it up so that they can move from place to place. Remember, the tabernacle is like a mobile temple, a tent. And so they have to dismantle it and then construct it when they move from place to place. Those in charge were 
the Levites. And what was the strict rule of Yahuwah God concerning the tabernacle? Let's read Numbers 1, 51 and 54. Whenever it is time for the tabernacle to move, the Levites will take it down. And when it is time to stop, they will set it up again. But any unauthorized person who goes too near the tabernacle must be put to death. Each tribe of Israel will camp in a designated area with its own family banner. But the Levites will camp around the tabernacle of the covenant to protect the community of Israel from Yahuwah's anger. The Levites are responsible to stand guard around the tabernacle. So the Israelites did everything just as Yahuwah had commanded Moses. And so we have two different types of functions, right? One is protection from neighboring countries, and two, protection from Yahuwah's anger that was supervised by the Levites through the work they do inside the tabernacle. But how strict was Yahuwah concerning the, the equipment and the materials of the tabernacle? Nobody was supposed to touch it except for the Levites. So the Levites were the ones who were in charge. And so they have a camp, right? And where was their campground? The wilderness. How many here have gone camping before? I don't recall ever going camping before. But you, when you go camping, it's not an easy life, is it? You have to always be ready because you never know if a bear is going to come or a coyote is going to come. And so you protect yourself, right? When it comes to the people of Israel, they have millions of people. They have to protect themselves from nations and other countries that may be hostile against them. And so Yahuwah made arrangements so that it would be maximized. Their protection would be mas master, ma uh, maximized, and they would have the perfect strategy to go from place to place. So what did Yahuwah God do? Numbers 2, 1 down to 2. Now Yahuwah spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's households. They shall camp, around the tent of meeting at a distance. Numbers chapter 2, we see Yahuwah Elohim organizing the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, into camps. A camp is composed of several tribes. In this instance, Yahuwah is organizing the whole 12 tribes of Israel and the people of God into four camps, with three tribes each. Every tribe has a banner, a symbol of their household, okay? And every camp that is composed of three tribes also has a symbol. It's called a standard. What is the meaning of the word standard? It's like a flag. And so there were four major flags that represented the four camps of Israel. What were these four major flags and how did God organize the camp of Israel? Well, the most important part of the camp, of course, is the tabernacle. Why? Because the tabernacle symbolized and represented the glory and the presence of Yahuwah 
our gum. This is from the tabernacle. What we have is the cloud that comes out from the tent that symbolizes the presence and the fellowship of Yahuwah, our God. And so everything in the camp of Israel centered around the tabernacle. And so Yahuwah arranged the different camps with the different tribes are strategically around the tabernacle. So which one was the first camp? Let's read the book of Numbers 2, 3 down to 9. Those, now those who camp on the east side. Want to pause there for a while. We're going to begin. Yahuwah wants to begin on the east side, right? Which is right here. This is the east side. Do you see the compass on the upper left corner? Yeah, where is the east side? The east side is right. Let me see. Do you see the east side? This is the east side right here. You see the east side? Right? Why is that the east side? The east side, that's the only part of the uh, tabernacle, the outer courtyard, where you can enter the tabernacle. Okay, so it's the east side. And so it begins with the east side. And those who kept on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard, the flag, of the camp of Judah. So that's the first camp, the camp of Judah, by their armies and the leaders of the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, and his army, even their numbered men, 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar and the leader of the sons of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, and his army, even their numbered men, 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun, and the, letter, the, the leader of the sons of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, and his army, even his numbered men, 57,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400 by their armies. They shall set out first. And so the instructions in Numbers chapter 2 tells the people of Israel their spot relative to the tabernacle whenever they are camped, okay? It also gives them instructions concerning who goes first when they are traveling. So who goes first when they're traveling? Judah, followed by Issachar, followed by Zebulun. This is the first camp. It's composed of three different tribes, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. How many people? How many fighting men comprise the camp of Judah? 186,400. Okay, these are the, this is the census, the number of men, 186,400. And so they have a standard, they have a flag. I wonder what the flag looked like. Maybe we can ask Jenna. What do you suppose the flag or the standard of the camp of Judah would look like? What symbol would they use? If you were to guess, I mean, it's actually not written in Holy Scripture, but you can kind of piece together different pieces of the puzzle and find your answer from different parts of the Scripture. But if you would bet, if you were to venture and guess, what could what symbol would probably be used by Judah, Camp Judah? What flag would they use? Judah? Huh? I'll give you a hint. Let's go to Genesis 49, verse 9. This is Jacob's blessing to the 12. The 12 sons, remember, Judah is a lion's wealth. From, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
he couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? This is why Judah is known as a lion. So it's likely that the flag, the standard of the camp of Judah, uses the symbol of a what? A lion. Now, according to scholars, biblical scholars, from this book commentary on the Old Testament, this is what researchers have uncovered concerning um, the, uh, the symbols that were used. Because there are many traditions in Judaism that is not recorded in the Bible. And according to researchers, what have they determined? What have they found out concerning these symbols? This is a commentary in the Old Testament. The different leaders of the tribes had their own standards with the crests of their ancestors depicted upon them. On the east above the tent of Naasson, the firstborn of Judah, there shown a standard of a green color. This color having been adopted by him because it was a green stone, an emerald, which was actually from the book of Exodus 25, verse 15. Remember the breastplate of the high priest that had different gems with different colors? It each represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, Judah was emerald. And on the standard, there was depicted a lion, the crest and the hieroglyphic of his ancestor Judah, whom Jacob had compared to a lion, saying Judah is a lion's well. So according to many scholars who study the Bible and the traditions of Israel, they know that the standard used by the camp of Judah which was determined, by the way, by the leader of the, Judah, the, the camp of Judah, which was Naasson, right? He chose the lion as his symbol, the lion of Judah. And this is, we're not saying this is how it looks like, okay? This is an artist's rendition of the flag of Camp Judah. And so this is where they will position themselves when they are camping, okay? When they're sleeping, when they set set out to camp they're going to be on the east side okay not northeast not southeast but specifically east and i want you to remember that because i'm going to ask you that question uh in 30 minutes okay so don't forget that not northeast not southeast but on the east side camp judah symbolized by the lion what comes after the camp of Judah? Let's go to Numbers 2, 10 to 16. On the south side, south side is underneath the yellow box, right? That's the south side. Who's going to camp there? On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their armies. And the leader of the sons of Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shedeur, and his army, even their numbered men, 46,500, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon and the leader of the, son, the sons of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zurishadai, and his army, even their numbered men, 59,300. Then comes a tribe of Gad and the leader of the sons of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel, and his army, even their numbered men, 45,650. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Reuben is 151,450 by their armies, and they shall set out second. And so when they were going to march, when they're going to move to a different place, 
The first ones to go were, is the camp of, camp of what? Judah, after they finish, the next one in line is the tribe of Reuben, followed by Simeon, followed by Gad. This is the camp of Reuben. And what was the standard use for the camp of Reuben? According to the scholars, towards the south, above the tent of Elisur, the son of Reuben, there floated a red standard, because the color red was the gemstone used on the breastplate of the high priest having the color of the Sardis on which the name of his father, Reuben, was engraved upon the breastplate of the high priest. The symbol depicted upon this standard was a human head. It represented a man because Reuben was the firstborn and the head of the family. This is why it's likely this represented the standard or flag of Camp Reuben. And where were they positioned? south of the tabernacle, directly south of the tabernacle. So east of the tabernacle, we have the camp of Judah. South, we have the camp of Reuben. Now we're going to go to west of the tabernacle. Who are they? But before, before we go to west, actually, the one that comes next are the Levites. The Levites are not going to be outside the yellow box. They're actually going to be inside. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps. Just as they camp, so they shall set out every man in his place by their standards. And so the Levites are in the middle because they're the ones taking care of what? The tabernacle. So it makes sense, right? That they're assigned to live in that area within the tabernacle. And so when they would set uh, to go to a different place, Judah would lead, followed by Issachar, then Zebulun, then Reuben, then Simeon, then Gad, and then the Levites are next. They, they pack their stuff and the Levites will f follow next. You see the progression, right? And so next in line after the Levites would be those who would be occupying the west side from the tabernacle. Who are they? Let's read Numbers. Chapter 2, 18 and 24. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their armies. And the leader of the sons of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud, and his army, even their numbered men, 40,500. Next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the sons of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedajur, and his army, even their numbered men, 32,200. Then comes a tribe of Benjamin and the leader of the sons of Benjamin. Abide in the sons of Gideonai and his army, even their numbered men, 35,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Ephraim, 108,100 by their armies, and they shall set out third. Okay, But they will come after the Levites. And what do you suppose would be the standard of the camp of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is composed of three tribes, the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Manasseh, and the tribe of Benjamin. What do you notice about those three tribes? They're like the last, right? You have uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, the, son, the sons of who? Joseph. Joseph, and who was Benjamin? The youngest son, right? 
And so they were all in one camp, camp of Ephraim. What would be their sign? What would be their flag or standard? Well, in the book of Deuteronomy 33, verse 17, it says, as the firstborn of his ox, <laughs> majesty is his, and his horns are the horns of the wild ox. With them, he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth. And those are 10,000s of Ephraim. And those are 10,000, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. So what do you think is the, the standard of the camp of Ephraim? The ox, right? The ox. And according to scholars, this is what they confirm. On the west, above the tent of Elishama, the son of Ephraim, there was a golden flag on which the head of a, a calf was depicted because it was through the vision of the calves or oxen that his ancestor Joseph had predicted and provided for the famine in Egypt, Genesis 41. And hence Moses, when blessing the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim said his glory is that of the firstborn of a bull or an oxen. The golden splendor of the standard of Ephraim resembled that of the chrysolite, in which the name of Ephraim was engraved upon the breastplate. And so this is what it might look like, an oxen. Looks like a water buffalo, doesn't it? Okay. Ephraim stands for the, uh, the oxen. And so they are, are to occupy the west side of the tabernacle. And so far, this is how they look like when they camp. You notice how everything is revolving around the center. What is the center again? The tabernacle, because that's the presence of God. And so basically, the design is to, be, to have Yahuwah God to be the center of the camp, to be the center of everything. That was the design. And so on the north side, we have the final camp. And who could that be? Let's find out. Numbers 2, 25 to 31 on the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their armies. And the leader of the sons of Dan, Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai, and his army, even their numbered men, 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher and the leader of the sons of Asher. Pagel, the son of Okran, and his army, even their numbered men, 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali and the leader of the sons of Naphtali, Ahiwar, the son of Enan, and his army, even their numbered men, 53,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Dan was 157,600. They shall set out last by their standards. And so the last camp to go when they're moving from place to place would be the camp of Dan. It's composed of three tribes, right? The tribe of Dan, the tribe of Asher, and the tribe of Naphtali. What would be the standard of the camp of Dan? If we go back to Genesis chapter 49, 17, when Jacob was blessing Dan, remember? What, was, what did he say about Dan? Something not too good. What was that? Let's go to Genesis 49, 17. Dan shall be a... Boy, <laughs> who was, now, I don't know about you, but if you were the leader of the tribe of Dan during this time with Moses, would you want to have a flag that has a serpent? <laughs> Jacob says to Dan, Dan shall be a serpent in the way. If you still remember our studies on the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan was responsible for introducing idolatry to the people of Israel. Remember that? And when you look at Revelation, they're listing the 12 tribes. Dan is missing for some reason, right? 
And here, the Bible says, Dan shall be a serpent. Not only that, but a serpent in the way. A serpent that is an obstruction. A hindrance towards the way. I want you to keep that in mind. Because everything in the Holy Bible is there for, for a purpose. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. Okay? I want you to keep that in mind. Because I'm going to ask you later on. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. Do you still remember who was called the way? Who was called the way? Yahusha. What does the serpent symbolize? What does the serpent symbolize? The serpent. Yeah, the devil. The snake, the devil, right? So we have the serpent, uh, the, the devil, in the way. Okay? So Dan is likened to a serpent. And so according to scholars, because of Jewish tradition, because Jewish tradition has already spelled out for us what these um, symbols are. And this is what they came up with. Towards the north, above the tent of Ahazer, the son of Dan, they've, there floated a motley standard of white and red like jaspis, in which the name of Dan was engraved upon the breastplate. The crest upon this was an eagle. <laughs> Notice that? An eagle. And later on, we're going to show you why. Can't wait to show you why. The crest upon this was an eagle, the great doe to serpents, which had been chosen by the leader in the place of a serpent because his forefather Jacob had compared Dan to a serpent, saying Dan is a serpent in the way, an adder, serastes, a horned snake in the path. But Ahiezer substituted the eagle. What does an eagle stand for? Destroyer of serpents as he shrank from carrying an adder upon his flag. So I want you to remember, an eagle is a destroyer of what? Serpents. And what does an eagle do? What does an eagle do? It flies. I want you to keep that in mind. And so the, the symbol that was used for the standard of the camp of Dan was an eagle. An eagle that is carrying in his beak a serpent, right? Defeating the serpent. Does that tell you something? It kind of prepares you about what's up, what's going to come, right? And so this is the camp of Dan. They are to occupy the north, the northern part from the tabernacle. This is how they're going to camp, okay? So when they are resting, when they are worshiping, this is how the camp looks like. One, uh, four sides, north, east, west, south. On the east, the camp of Judah, on the south, the camp of Reuben, on the west, the camp of Ephraim, and on the north, the camp of Dan. The Levites are in the midst or in the middle of the entire camp in the tabernacle. When they are to march, these are the, this is how they look. This is the, the line, the tribal line. Begins with Judah, followed by Issachar, Zebulon, right? That's the first camp. Next camp, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, and then the camp of the Levites, followed by the next camp, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. So this is how God has arranged them. Take note in Numbers 2, 32 to 34. In summary, the troops of Israel listed by their families totaled 603,550. But as Yahuwah had commanded, the Levites were not, were not included in this registration. So the people of Israel did everything as Yahuwah had commanded Moses. Each clan 
and family set up camp and marched under their banners exactly as Yahuwah had instructed them. Now, whenever Yahuwah instructs something, whenever he makes arrangements, he doesn't do it haphazardly. You notice that? There's always a reason behind everything Yahuwah God does. There's a reason for that. Remember, everything in the Old Testament points to who? Yahusha. Do you believe that? Everything. This is why Yahuwah is arranging everything in the Old Testament to point to Yahusha HaMashiach. Because that's his plan. That's his logos. The coming of his son, Messiah. For the people's sins, the people might be saved. And so when we look at the arrangement Yahuwah God made here, there are four camps. What were the four camps again? Without cheating, what were the four camps? You got Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and then. Do you remember the symbols? Do you remember the standards, the four standards that represent the four camps? What were they? Because it, it is very significant. The four standards were the line of Judah, the man, Reuben, ox, Ephraim, and eagle, Dan, right? The four standards. And these four standards surrounded the tabernacle. That's significant. You know why? Why is this picture significant? What does it represent? It turns out in the book of Ezekiel, something like this was shown to Ezekiel. Who was Ezekiel? Let's turn to Ezekiel, chapter 1, 1 to 3. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar, among the exiles, the heavens were open and I saw visions, visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's exile, the word of Yahuwah came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar. And there the hand of Yahuwah came upon him. So I want to pause it for a while. We're in the book of Ezekiel. And the book of Ezekiel is basically God's word to Ezekiel concerning the judgment God has made against Judah. Judah. At this point, Ezekiel is already a captive, right? He's among the captives because the judgment of Judah has already begun. And God is going to complete what he said he's going to do as punishment against Judah. This is why they were exiled in Babylon. And eventually, God would have Jerusalem destroyed, the temple destroyed. We studied this when? Just last week, right? And so Ezekiel was one of the major prophets. God had a word for him. And his word for him began with a vision. A vision of God. And this is a wonderful vision. You want to see the vision? I mean, you have to use your imagination because this is not your ordinary vision, brethren. And so this is what it says in Ezekiel chapter 1. And the verses are 4 down to 9. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north. A great cloud with fire flashing forth continually in a bright light around it. And in its midst, something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. I want to pause it for a while. When you see something up in the air and it's made of metal, it's floating, <laughs> and it has lights, glowing metal, what comes to mind? 
What comes to your mind? When you see a glowing metal up in the air, what do you call that? A UFO, <laughs> right? Could it be a UFO? I mean, it seems like what Ezekiel's describing here is a UFO, right? A glowing metal in the midst of the fire. Within it, there were figures, figures resembling four living beings, four living creatures, four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form. So they were humanoid, right? Each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. <laughs> Very strange, huh? And they gleamed like bur burnished bronze. They're very shiny. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. Very strange. Remember, Ezekiel was given the vision of God. God's hand was upon him, the spirit was upon him, and he had this vision. It's a vision, something he's seeing. He's describing for us what he's seeing. And what he saw was a glowing metal in the midst of fire. From it come out four living beings. How does he describe these four living beings? Four faces and four wings. What else does he say about these four living beings? Ezekiel 1.10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had a face of a man. Interesting. Each of the four had the face of a lion. Interesting. On the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. That's very fascinating because when it says here the face of a lion, what is that? Judah. On the right side. Where was Judah in our map today? On the right side, the east, right? And on the left side, who was that? Ephraim. What's his uh, ensign? An ox. On the left side was an ox. And on top, on the bottom, you have the, the, the eagle and the man. Interesting, isn't it? So could it be that the... Uh, Four camps and the signs of the man, the lion, the ox, and the eagle represent the presence, the glory of Yahuwah God for the people of Israel? What do you think? Could that be the case? It could be. It could represent Yahuwah's fellowship, presence, and glory for specifically his people Israel. Because these four ensigns represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it represents, it could be, I'm not affirming it, it could be representative of Yahuwah's presence and glory. If we're not finished, how else does he describe the, uh, the four living beings? Let's keep going. If he, uh, Ezekiel 1, 15 to 19. Now, as I looked at the living beings, behold, there was one wheel. There's a wheel. There was one wheel on the earth beside the living beings. So there's, for some reason, there's like a wheel right beside them. For each of the four of them, the appearance of the wheels and their workmanship was like sparkling barrel. And all four of them 
had the same form, their appearance and workmanship being as if one wheel were within another. Whenever they moved, they moved, they moved in any of the four directions without turning as they moved. Wow, it goes against the, the uh, laws of physics, doesn't it? As for their rims, and so the wheels had rims. As for their rims, they were lofty and awesome. And the rims of all four of them were full of eyes round about. Whenever the living beings moved, the wheels moved with them. And whenever the living beings rose from the earth, the wheels rose also. And so these four living beings, we identified with the four faces, right? Also had wheels beside them. And the way they move is different from the way of how we move, our cars move. They had wheels, but they operated on a different laws of physics. It was very strange. And this was being uh, depicted by Ezekiel. Now, what did they do, these four living beings? What did they represent? Well, let's keep reading. Ezekiel 1, 12 to 14. And each went straight forward wherever the spirit was about to go. They would go without turning as they went. In the midst of the living beings, there was something that looked like burning coals of fire, like torches darting back and forth among the living beings. The fire was bright and lightning was flashing from the fire and the living beings ran to and fro like bolts of lightning. So they were guided by the spirit. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go, okay? And so what did they bring with them? Ezekiel 1.22, now over the heads of the living things, living beings, there was something like an expanse, like an awesome gleam of crystal. Wanna pause it for a while? I want you to remember that detail, okay? And so over the heads of these living beings, there was something like an expanse, like a sea, like a sea, an awesome gleam of crystal, okay? Spread out over their heads. I also heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of abundant waters as they went, like the voice of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army camp. Whenever they stood still, they dropped their wings. Now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled the throne, high up was a figure of the appearance of a man. And the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a, rainy, on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. So was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahuwah. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. And so these four living creatures, these four living beings, represented the throne of Yahuwah, our God displaying the glory of Yahuwah our God. And so in, in the book of Numbers, when the camp was set and you had the four standards surrounding the tabernacle, it represented the throne of God because Yahuwah made a covenant with Israel. And so he set his throne upon them, his fellowship with the people of Israel. But keep in mind, the book of Ezekiel is about judgment that Yahuwah God has given to his people, Judah, right? And so if you read Ezekiel chapter 2 all the way to chapter 9, it talks about the idolatry of Judah 
despite the punishment, despite the captivity, which we studied last week, they remained, they remained stubborn to the point that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem, remember? And so after the judgment, we go now to Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel 1 introduces Ezekiel to the four living beings. Jump to Ezekiel 10, what happens? Ezekiel chapter 10, 14 to 18, and each one had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Chabar. And so in Ezekiel 10, all of a sudden, he sees the four living beings again, right? This time with the, with a cherub, as a cherub. And how does he describe the four faces? He says the face of a cherub, the face of a man, the face of a lion, and the face of what? An eagle. Do you see the discrepancy here? What's the discrepancy that you picked up? Huh? The face of a cherub instead of a face of an ox. What could that mean? Is there a mistake here in the Bible? Well, if we look, if we go to the uh, Blue Letter Bible, and we look up Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 14. This is what it says for cherub. Cherub, you see that? Hebrew word 3742. What is that? Cherub, spelled K-U-R-W-B. Cherub, right? That is cherub. Cherub. Now, according to researchers, Bible knowledge commentary, research shows that the face of an ox was, in fact, the normal understanding of the face of a cherub. In Akkadian literature, want to pause it for a while, what is Akkadian literature? A literature from Assyria. Remember the 10 tribes, they went to where? Assyria, and then a, a big contingent of them migrated, some to Ophir, some to Kurdistan, some to Kush, different places, right? Some of them stayed in Assyria. Okay, and from there, the Akkadian literature adopted some of the language of the Hebrew people. And so from Akkadia, the Akkadian literature comes this word, kuribu. <laughs> I don't know about you. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes. Kuribu? Yeah, which is a cognate of kerub. What does that mean? It means they have the same source, a parent word. Okay, so they're related words. And so, according to the Akkadian literature, Kuribu, which is representative of Cherub, is used, is representative of an ox. That's what they use, an ox for, right? And if you look at Kuribu, what does it sound like to you? What does that sound to you? Huh? Kuribu? Carabao. When I looked up Carabao in the English dictionary, this is what it says, in the Philippines. The water, buffalo. And so the word carabao came from the Philippines. But the Filipinos did not invent it. Where did it come from? It came from the Hebrew word kerub or kuribu, right? Well, where did they get it? Well, that's because many of the Hebrew people went to Ophir. That's how we got 
a lot of the language from. This is why when you look at the Philippines, a lot of the mountain ranges has Hebrew terms. A lot of the vocabulary we have in Philippine or Tagalog language, a lot of it have Hebrew origins. This is why we really cannot deny our Hebrew roots, okay? And so when we go to Ezekiel chapter 10, the face of a cherub, it matches. It's also the face of a, an ox. It's the face of an ox, face of a man, face of a lion, face of an eagle. And so according to Ezekiel, what happens to the four living beings? What happens to the cherubim? Now, when the cherubim moved, the wheels, the wheels would go beside them. Also, when the cherubim lifted up their wings to rise from the ground, the wheels would not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. And when they rose up, the wheels would rise with them. For the spirit of the living beings was in them. And the glory of Yahuwah departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And so what Ezekiel is describing here is the image that he has seen, the image of the four living beings and the wheel departing, moving away from the temple. And when it moved away from the temple, what came with it? The glory of Yahuwah. That's why when you look at verse 15, it says, Then the glory of Yahuwah departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Now, did it stay there? So Ezekiel is describing for us Yahuwah's judgment. It's already taking place. Yahuwah has taken his glory away from the temple. But it doesn't stop there. Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 19, When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of Yahuwah's house. And the glory of the God, the God of Israel hovered over there. So now Yahuwah's glory was no longer in the temple, no longer in the tent, right? It's now at the east side entrance. It's moved away. But it doesn't stop there. Ezekiel 11, 22 to 24. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of Yahuwah went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. And so what these four living beings or four living creatures is communicating to Ezekiel is God's judgment because when the four living beings, represented by the cherubim, when it moved away from the temple, God's glory moved away from the temple, right? And then it moved eastward to the mountains, and then it was gone. And so the departure of God's glory, Yahuwah's glory, for the people of Israel was complete. And so this begins now, the doom of the people of Judah, the people of Israel. This is why eventually Jerusalem was ransacked. The temple was destroyed. Not only that, but before that happened, God, Yahuwah God, gave a, hope, a message of hope to, the, to Ezekiel. What was that? Ezekiel 11, 17 and 20. Therefore, say, thus says Yahuwah God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among, among which you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. 
you know, so far that's happened, right? I mean, it seems like God has taken the people of Israel scattered about in Israel. I think that's fulfilled. But there are other parts of the prophecy not yet fulfilled. When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all of its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be, I shall be there. God, this hasn't been fulfilled yet. And if you remember the book of Jeremiah, it describes a similar covenant that was established by Yahushua. Remember? When he's going to write the laws in our hearts and our minds through the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing here in the future is the restoration of the people of Israel, not only as a nation, but especially as a people of Yahuwah, our God. This will be in the future. But when in the future? How will this take place? Revelation. It's beautiful. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things, I looked. I want to pause there for a while. What chapter are we on in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 4, which comes after 2 and 3. Do you still remember what the topic is in Revelation 2 and 3? What's the topic in Revelation 2 and 3? It's about Yahusha's message to the seven churches, right? And so after Yahusha gives his instructions to Apostle John to give to the, to the seven churches, Yahusha, the Bible then goes on to Revelation 4, after these things. So after the message was given to the seven churches. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing, in, standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So after the message to the seven churches, what was Apostle John instructed to do? He was instructed to go up into the door that leads to heaven. And so he did that. And he received a message that says to him, what I will show you what must take place after these things. The Bible says what must, not just what will, but what must. What does that tell us? It suggests this is God's plan. This is God's purpose that will happen. It will happen. What is that? Revelation chapter 4, we read 1. Let's read 2 down to 4. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone, and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne was 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Here's Apostle John. He has a vision in heaven. When he goes to heaven, what does he see? What's the first thing he notices? What does he notice? A throne, right? Whose throne do you think that is? That's the throne of Yahuwah God. And he's surrounded by 24 thrones. And what did he see sitting around the 24 thrones? 
24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. What do you think is represented here by the 24 elders? What do you think? The word elders, what is that in reference of elders? What did Apostle Peter call himself? An elder, right? To my fellow elders who are taking care of the people of God, the elders of the different churches. And so I believe, okay? I believe, again, this is my personal opinion. I believe Revelation 4, 2 to 4, the 24 elders mentioned there sitting on the thrones, that refers to the church. The 24 elders refers to the church. Apostle John is giving a vision of the church sitting in thrones, okay? Why do I believe that? Because it also mentions they are wearing what? White garments. What do they have? Golden crowns. What are these crowns? If you look at the Greek word for crown, it's highlighted. It is the word Stephanos. What does Stephanos mean? It means a prize in the public games. And so the crown that these 24 elders are wearing, it is a result of them becoming victorious. You get it? It's not something simply given. It wasn't inherently theirs. It was something given to them after they accomplished something. It is a victor's crown. And so these elders, representative of the church, is described by the Apostle John as clothed in white garments and who have crowns, which is the result of the work that they do. And if we go back to Revelation 2 and 3, what is the description about? It's about the church, right? What are the this, what does the, the church, how is it described? Why do we believe the one mentioned here clothed in white garments who wear the crowns represent the church? Revelation 3, 5 to 6, he who, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. It's very clear, isn't it? The one who has the crown, the one who's wearing the white garments are the church, members of the church. These are the elders that will be in the thrones that Apostle John saw. The word crown there in Revelation chapter 3, is that Stephanos? Yes, it is which is similar to 2 Timothy 4, 6 to 8. Apostle Paul said, fight the good fight, finish the race. And when that day comes, we will be given the crown of righteousness. That is also Stephanos. And so the crown being worn by these elders who have white garments, that represents the church. And so Apostle John, the first thing he sees, the throne of God. And then the 24 elders, representative of the church. So in God's plan, the church is going to be in heaven. But his plan doesn't finish there, right? We read 2 to 4. Take a look at this. 6 to 8. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. Do you remember that? I told you back in Ezekiel to remember that vision. 
a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four, what do we have here? Living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out, day after day and night after night. They keep on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And so according to scriptures, God's plan, remember Revelation 4 says this, this, is, this is what must happen. This is plan, God's plan. God's purpose begins with the church, but it also includes the four living beings. What do you think that is indicative of? People of Israel, right? So in God's plan, those are going to go to heaven, the church, but also the people of Israel. God will restore Four living beings. Like a lion, like a human face, like an ox, like an eagle in flight. This is indicative of what God's plan will manifest into restoration of Israel, the bringing of Israel eventually to heaven. And you notice there will be singing, right? Which is indicative of worship. And in this worship, in, when they sing, what, who also joins them in singing? Revelation this is beautiful, 4, 9 to 11. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay down, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and they exist because you created what you please. And so the church in Israel, they're worshiping together, <laughs> right? In the kingdom of heaven. This is God's work of restoration that will culminate in heaven. But how can this be? Because the last time we saw the four living beings, they left Israel, right? How can this be? How can this plan that must happen, according to Revelation 4.1, how will it be fulfilled? Let's go back to Leviticus. Oh, I mean, Numbers. Okay? But before we go back to, let's go back to Numbers. And we're going to show you something. Numbers 24, 1 and 5. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahuwah to bless Israel. I want to pause her for a while. Do you know who Balaam is? He was like a sorcerer. He was hired by Balak, king of the Moabites. He wanted to curse. He wanted, he wanted to hire Balaam, a, a sorcerer, to curse the people of Israel. And so here's Balaam, and he saw something. And because of what he saw, he decided, nope, I'm not going to mess with the people of Israel. Okay? This is what he saw. When Balaam saw that it pleased Yahuwah to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times, to seek omens. But he set his face toward the wilderness. So he set his face toward the wilderness. 
And Balaam lifted up his eyes. So from the wilderness, he lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Behor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is open. He saw something. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel. So here's Balaam, who had a change of heart after what he saw. What did he see? He saw the people of Israel camping tribe by tribe. When he saw the people of Israel tribe by tribe from a distance, when he lifted up his eyes, which is suggesting to us he's looking at it from an aerial point of view, he's looking at it from the top, he noticed the vision of Yahuwah God. He saw the plan of Yahuwah God for the restoration of Israel and for the restoration of all mankind. The vision of the Almighty. So here's Balaam. So he's, you know, this is uh, what we discussed so far. Remember, on the east side, the camp of Judah. South, the camp of Reuben. Uh, the camp of Ephraim on the west. And on the north, the camp of Dan, right? And you notice, because of the instructions of Yehovah God, there were places that they could not camp. Where? These places they could not camp in. Because if they were to camp in the area marked by an X, a red X, that means they're southeast or northeast or northwest or southwest. No, it has to be north, west, south, or east. So they're limited in their boundary, which was determined by how the breadth of the tabernacle area, right? And so when you look at the population, once you look at the population, and I want you to notice something about the population. So the camp of Dan, 157,000. The camp of Judah, 186,000. Camp of Reuben, 151,000. The camp of Ephraim, 108,000. Which camp had the biggest one, the biggest population? Camp of Judah, right? 186,000. Which one had the shortest or the, the, the lowest population? Camp of Ephraim. 108,000. When you can you try and imagine for me how they are going to position themselves? For example, the camp of Judah, first the camp of the tribe of Judah, followed by behind right behind them is the, the tribe of Issachar, behind them is Zebulon, right? And so according to their population, how do you think it would look like from above? If Balaam were to see the people of Israel camping following this directive from Yahuwah God, how would that look like from a helicopter's point of view? You want to see how it looks like? That's how it looks like. According to the population number. What do you see there? What do you see? Huh? What do you see? You see a cross. So when Balaam saw from a distance, that's Balaam right there with a the staff, <laughs> right? He saw the people of Israel, the glory of God, 
and then he sees that kind of symbol. Something happened to Balaam. Bible says, in fact, right, when he saw that, Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel. The Spirit of God came upon him. And then he wrote these words. He said, the vision of the Almighty, the plan of the Almighty for the restoration of the people of Israel. You know, sometimes when, when, when the people of Israel were camping like that, do you think they had that idea? They had that in their mind? When the people of Israel were in their, were in their camps, right? And they follow the directives. Do you think they had in mind what they would look like from above? They had no idea, right? This was inspired by Yahuwah God. Sometimes we make designs here on earth and we don't even consider how it looks like from above, right? For example, some of our favorite places. Did they have any idea it's going to look like this from above? Did they? Probably not, you know, but that's how it turned out. But with the people of Israel, this is what they had. Something that communicates. What does it communicate? Redemption and restoration. The cross. Now you might say, well, when it comes to the cross, there are some people nowadays who are saying that Yahusha did not die on a cross. Did you know that? The watchtower. How many here are familiar with the watchtower? You know what they say? They say that Yahusha did not die on the cross. He died on a pole. He died on a stake. That's what they say. Why, why did they say that? Well, this is what they say in the book of John, 1919. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Yahushua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So here's the, the word cross. So here's Yahushua. He's on the cross, right? The word cross is used in English. However, when you use Greek, when you look at the Greek word for cross, what do you find? You find this word. John 1919, look at the word cross. What is the Greek word? Stauros. The Greek word 4716. Stauros. That's how you pronounce it. Stauros. Right? You see the Greek word for cross? What does that mean? This is what they cite, the meaning of uh, stauros. And this is what they say. It means a stake or post, a pole or cross. So according to the Greek word stauros, when you come across that word, it refers to a stake or a post, a pole or a cross. Okay? And so those are the possibilities. However, the Watchtower community, Jehovah's Witnesses, they dug deeper and they looked at the Bible dictionary published by Douglas. And this is what they say. This is what they say. Stauros in both classical Greek and Koine carries no thought of a cross made of two timbers. Because when you think of a cross, it's not just one timber, but two timbers together, right? Forming a letter T. This is the idea we have in mind, like a, a lowercase t, right? That's what we have in our mind. But according to um, the study, Stauros carries no thought of a cross made of two timbers. It means only an upright stake, pale pile or pole, as might be used for a fence, stockade, or palisade, says Douglas New Bible Dictionary of 1985 under cross. And this is what it says in the New Bible Dictionary. The Greek word for cross, stauros, verb stauru, means primarily, definition number one, 
an upright stake or beam, and secondarily, a stake used as an instrument for punishment and execution. It doesn't mention two beams or two timbers, right? And so the two primary mean the two meanings, one upright stake or beam, secondary, a stake used as an instrument for punishment and execution. This is from the New Bible Dictionary. This is what is cited by the Jehovah's Witnesses. However, the problem is they did not complete the reading. <laughs> you know how some other religions do that? They take things out of context. And so what you need to do is read the whole passage. Read the content of the New Bible Dictionary. So let's keep reading, okay? This is from the New Bible Dictionary. The entry is cross. The Greek word for cross, staros, means primarily an upright stake or beam. And secondary, secondarily, a stake used as an instrument for punishment and execution. And then they stop reading from there. But we will keep reading. It is used in this latter sense, used as an instrument of execution, right? It is used in this latter sense in the New Testament, apart from the single upright post on which the victim was tied or impaled. There were three types of cross, three types. What were they? The crux commissa, which is shaped like a capital T, though by some uh, to be uh, thought by some to be derived from the symbol of the god Tammuz, the letter Tau. The crux decusata, uh, St. Andrew's cross was shaped like the letter X. Okay, that's another kind. The crux emisa was the familiar two beams, the uh, lowercase t, held by tradition to be the shape of the cross on which our Lord died. This is strengthened by the references in the Gospels to the title nailed to the cross of Christ over his head. And so if you go deeper and look at Stauros, it carries the meaning of different cross possibilities. Because remember, the, the Romans were the ones who did the crucifixion, right? They got that from the Phoenicians and they perfected the craft of crucifixion. And so there were three types, capital T, the letter X, and the lowercase t, right? And so could it be possible that Yahusha was put to death on the pole? Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. If we are just to look at the word stauros, all of these are possible. Pole, letter T, capital, short case T, or letter X. All of these are possible. However, we have to look at the whole thing, right? And I believe, I believe Yahusha was on the cross that is mentioned there in this book, comprised of two beams forming the letter T, not capital, okay? The last one, the crux emisa. Why? Do I believe that? The book of John, 20, verse 25. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails. The word nails. How many nails? At least how many? At least two. Right? Two nails in his hands. If he was on a cross or in a pole, he was on a pole. How many nails would you need? Only one. But because he was on the letter T type of cross, two cross beams, then there has to be two 
nails for each of his hands. It doesn't say one nail, it says two nails, okay? What else? Reason number two, John 21, 18 to 19, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Yahushua said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And he said to him, follow me. Why else do we believe that the crucifixion of Yahushua was not on a pole or a stake, but on an actual cross? That's because Yahushua said to Apostle Peter that this is how you're going to die. You will stretch out your hands. What does that mean? He'll be spread out like this, as if being nailed on a cross. This is the kind of death that will glorify God. And then you notice he said, follow me. And so in a way, he was telling Peter, you're going to follow me. Even in how you're going to die. The same way I die, you're going to die. By crucifixion, not by means of a stake, but by means of uh, an actual cross. Number two. Number three, Matthew 27, 37. A sign was fastened to the cross above Yahusha's head, announcing the charge against him. It reads, this is Yahusha, the king of the Jews. If this was a stake, then what was fastened should be above his hands, right? If this was the capital T, there's no room to place it on top of his head. But if this is lowercase t, then it could be on his, the top of his head. And so this is another clue, which is why we believe he was crucified on the cross, left, uh, the lowercase t, not the uppercase t, and not on a pole, not on a state. Reason number four, why I believe that. What is that? Remember the word cross, it means stauros. This is how it reads in Greek. If you had a Greek manuscript of the Bible, the New Testament, you're going to find Greek words. And that's what you're going to find. That's the word you're going to find for stauros, right? It is that word, stauros. Now, the New Testament was written in the first century, right? There are manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, like second century, even the originals, the first century, whenever the disciples, whenever the scribes would write down the word stauros, they would not write the complete letters. They singled out two letters. They used two letters to symbolize stauros. What were those two letters? The tau and the ro, the t and the p. They use these words instead of the whole word for stauros. And you know how they use this? They superimpose the two images together to form one letter. And you know how you know how that looked like? It looked like that. These are the manuscripts, the earliest Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Stauros is depicted by a symbol. Look at the symbol. Do you see the symbol? Right? Let me see if I can. Oops. I don't know if you see it. 
we'll use the pin. You see it right here? They superimpose the tau in the row, the P and the T, right? Another document, same thing, right? Stauros. Instead of spelling out the word, they use one symbol. What does that look like to you? It looks like the lowercase t, right? It, because it, it was a symbol. It looked like that. It looked like this, which was God communicating his plan of redemption by Yahusha dying on the cross. Are we saying now that the cross is a symbol of Christianity? Are we saying that? No, we're not saying that. As a matter of fact, the early Christians never used the cross as a, as a symbol of Christianity. They didn't. Do you know when, when the Christians, so-called Christians, first used the cross as a symbol of Christianity? In the 5th century. Before that, they did not use the cross. It was only in the 5th century that they began using the cross as a symbol of Christianity. This is why, since that was after the apostasy, we don't believe the cross is a symbol of Christianity. However, the cross is part of the plan of God for the redemption of mankind. And it's communicated throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what do we need to do then? Why does the Bible say carry your cross? What does that mean? Matthew 16, 24. Then Yahusha said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean? To carry your cross. What does that mean? Does it mean you're going to have a cross like as a necklace? Because there's some people who believe that's what it means. When you carry your cross, you have like a crucifix. Is that what it means? No. What does it mean to carry your cross? Yahushua's telling us you need to deny yourself and follow me. This is why the true symbol of a true follower of Yahushua is that anything that we can see with our eyes, the true symbol of what it means to be a true Yahushua, to be a true follower of Yahushua, the symbol is denying self so that we can follow in. It's not something we carry. It's not jewelry. True Christianity is not depicted by a physical symbol or by anything physical. It is by our attitude. As a matter of fact, if you truly want to be a disciple of Yahusha and you want to show the world the sign, because we all like signs, right? We all like symbols, right? If you really want to show the world that you are a disciple of Yahusha, do you know what we need to show them? What do you think is the one symbol, the one symbol of Yahusha that will define that you indeed are a disciple of Yahusha? John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. So what's the true symbol of Christianity? It's not the crucifix. What's the true symbol of Christianity? Yahushua says, all will know that you are my disciples. If we do what? If we love one another. And how must we love one another? Yahushua says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, why did Yahushua say this is a new commandment? Matthew chapter 5, 43, 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only. And do, who, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Why did Yahushua say a new commandment I give you? And by this commandment that you love each other the way I love you, will set you apart as indeed my true disciples. Because Yahushua said, what sets us apart from others is when we love even our enemies. Yahushua says, if you love those who do good things to you, what makes you different from the world? <laughs> the world does the same thing. But if you're able to pray for those who spitefully use you, if you're able to love those who hate you, if you love even your enemy, Yahushua says, and you become sons of your God. You become daughters of your God. Because the Father is also the same way. He loved us while we were still enemies. Yahushua was the same way, wasn't he not? He loved us even while we were enemies. This is why, brethren, the true sign, the true symbol, the true flag of those who follow Yahushua, it is love. Love. That must be our symbol. And it cannot be captured by any physical symbol. It is captured by our attitude and our behavior towards our fellow human beings. Why should we give this kind of love? I'll show you why. Let's go to Revelation. Almost done. 5, 8 to 10. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words, You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Why do we show the true sign of Christianity by love, even loving those who do wrong things against us? Because that's what Shahusha did. You notice the four living beings, representative of what? Israel. You notice the 24 elders that fell down before the Lamb. What did they say about the Lamb of God? That he was slaughtered. And his blood was used to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people. This is why the restoration of Israel, so that the church and Israel can be together to worship God, it can only be possible through who? The Lamb. Yeah. That's why in the plan of God, it included the work of redemption. He had to die on a cross. By means of his blood, his people would be ransomed. It was communicated even when Yahuwah was telling Moses, this is how you are to arrange the camp of Israel. He was telling the world his plan of redemption through the Lamb of God. 
and the Lamb of God, before he became the Lamb of God, you know how he started all of this? We're still in Revelation 5. Let's read verse 5. It says this, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals, so that the process of redemption can at last be fulfilled. Who had to start it? The lion of the tribe of Judah. This is why in the arrangement of the camp of Israel, who started? The tribe of Judah. Who is the lion of Judah? Yahusha. And when you look at the other symbols, it represents the work of Yahusha, does it not? Right? It starts with the lion of Judah, the son of God. What did he do? He went to earth to do what? To redeem man. That is represented by Reuben. How would he redeem man? He would become a servant. The oxen that represents servitude. Servitude. The oxen represents servanthood. And so Yahusha, the Lion of Judah, he came to redeem man on earth. To do so, he had to become a suffering servant, like an oxen. And when he died and rose up again, what can he now do? Now he can take human beings up to heaven, symbolized by the eagle. You notice there was a difference. If you go back in your studies, there was a difference in Ezekiel and Revelation concerning the eagle. In Revelation, the eagle was portrayed as flying. Why? Because it represents the triumph of Yahusha. He will now be able to bring people into heaven. Remember, Dan started out as what in Genesis? A serpent. What was a serpent again? A hindrance in the way. But because of Yahuwah's plan, because of the sacrifice of Yahusha, Dan became what? The eagle. The destroyer of the serpent. Isn't that beautiful? Do you see now how the camp of Israel, the symbols involved, and how God arranged it? It tells a story, a story of redemption. The lion of Judah came in order to redeem man by becoming a suffering servant to die on the cross so that man can be taken by Yahusha to heaven heaven where we can be forever this is why brothers and sisters we should be thankful especially during this season right tomorrow or a sunday it is the day of atonement yahuwah gave up his son yahusha gave up himself to die on the cross so that we can be redeemed by his blood that we can be put right before yahuwah our god and so let us prepare for that Let's prepare for our worship service so that we can be blessed by Yahuwah, our loving Father. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray. Everlasting Father, yes, thank you, Yahuwah, our God, yes, our Almighty One from heaven. Yes. From long, long ago, you have already planned for our redemption. Amen. Thank you so much for having us in your thoughts. Yes. Thank you because you have blessed us with your Son. 
Yes. Died on the cross that we might live. Yes. Yahusha Hamashiach, thank you for your sacrifice. Yes. You came here as the Lion of Judah, died as a Lamb of God, so that we can be taken with you, yes. the kingdom of heaven. How can we forget your sacrifice? We yes. will represent you. We know how. We know what you symbolize. Yes. It is the power of love, loving even those who go against us. Yes. Yahusha, we will do our best to follow your example yes. because we know this is what pleases you. Help us to be like you. Teach yes. us to think like you, to feel like you. Yes. This way we can become true sons and daughters of our Abba. We can be true servants of yours, yes. following your teachings, loving one another, loving our fellow men, including our enemies. Amen. Father, thank you for listening to our prayers. Yes, May you Lord. bless us with hope and kindness. Yes. May you bless us every day as we prepare for the days of our worship service to remember your sacrifice, yes. how you gave up your son that he might die on the cross, that we might live forever yes. to be by your side. Amen. We ask and beg everything, loving Father, yes. in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Hamashiach. Amen. Amen.